0: Prisoners in Milwaukee were inspired by the George Floyd Rebellion to plan an uprising and escape at the secure detention facility. Two prisoners subdued a guard and took his keys, pepper spray, handcuffs, and radio. They were unable to release other prisoners before more guards arrived, but authorities allege that at least 11 other people were in on the plan. Guards in North Carolina attacked prisoners with stinger grenades. At least 40 prisoners at Salisbury had rebelled in protest of the conditions of quarantine. Meanwhile, in California's San Quentin prison, 19 prisoners suffering from COVID-19 are on hunger strike to protest what they call dismal conditions on the facility's medical wing. Quarantine cells do not have access to showers, electrical power, or adequate ventilation. James King, a former prisoner there, said that, quote, people at San Quentin are now putting their bodies on the line in the hopes of raising awareness. If they are successful, it will save lives, not just of incarcerated people, but also the larger community.
1: Despite the COVID-19 pandemic, Florida is forcing prisoners to work outside the prisons without pay. In May, the Florida Times Union reported that 3,500 prisoners in 67 counties around the state were working at jobs outside prison that included grounds maintenance, sewage treatment, and moving services. It's a profitable deal for the Florida Department of Corrections, to which government agencies pay $2 an hour for the labor, but the prisoners receive nothing. The Department of Corrections doesn't appear to be taking any precautions against the pandemic. Physical distancing is not an option since working prisoners live in crowded conditions and travel to and from work sites on packed buses. In early April, the corrections website reported over 1,400 cases of COVID-19 among prisoners and 261 among staff. Allison Wilkie, public policy director at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice's Prisoner Reentry Institute, commented about Florida's prison labor practices, quote, Using people in prison for low-paid labor is a horrific practice in normal circumstances. It really is akin to slave labor but there's a very particular risk in this situation where there's a highly infectious virus circulating, end quote.
0: As follow-up to our interview with Kijana Tashiri Askari last week, he sent in this update, quote, the pigs have raided my cell twice since the interview, Saturday and Monday. On Monday, there was a bunch of police, the sergeant, lieutenant, etc. They got my phone. I was able to break it in half and flush the SIM card. will be putting me on C-status where I can't make calls. Only will be able to write letters for about six months. They are now giving showers, disinfectant, etc., though. Revolutionary love.
1: Recently, the states of Maryland and Oklahoma passed laws mandating statewide systems for tracking jailhouse informants, or prisoners who testify against other prisoners, to ensure better safeguards against unreliable informant testimony. As the Innocence Project put it, quote, Jailhouse informants are incentivized witnesses who expect or receive leniency or other benefits in exchange for information or testimony, end quote. In other words, jailhouse informants can potentially receive rewards for lying. Jailhouse informant testimony has contributed to convictions in one-fifth of wrongful conviction cases as determined by DNA testing. However, very few states track key information about their jailhouse informants, including how many other cases they have testified in and what they have received in exchange for their testimony.
0: On June 28th in New York City, police officers engaged in what the newspaper, The Independent, called a police riot during the joyful celebration that was the Queer Liberation March. People had been dancing in the streets when the police descended, sporting billy clubs, pepper spray, and handcuffs. As The Independent reported, quote, In a matter of seconds, The officers managed to turn what was a peaceful, if raucous, gathering into a scene of chaos that left demonstrators lying supine on the pavement." The Queer Liberation March, the first of which was held last year, is a response to the increasing corporate takeover of Pride. The theme this year was anti-police brutality after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. The march commemorated the 51st anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, considered the start of the modern queer liberation movement. As Natalie James, an organizer of the march, said, "Officers." brutalized people who were peacefully marching against police brutality on the 51st anniversary of an uprising against police brutality, quote. James commented that only a year ago, the New York Police Department apologized for its repressive role in Stonewall. Police arrested four to six March participants, but no one knew what those people were charged with or where they were detained. In May, we reported on a prisoner protest in the Torrance County Detention Facility in New Mexico, an ICE prison for immigrants run for profit by CoreCivic. New details have emerged via The Guardian's reporting. On May 14th, prisoners were on hunger strike, protesting being served disgusting food and inadequate COVID-19 measures. More than 20 prisoners were forced into a group by guards, who then surrounded them and began pepper spraying them prisoners who tried to cover their faces were singled out for attack. One Cuban asylum seeker attempted to use a shirt as a face mask, but says, quote, an officer sprayed me directly in my face and on my body. And I ran. I felt like I was going to drown, unquote. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one, or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. Here's a call this week that we received from California talking about the coronavirus conditions at the California Institute for Women and a plea to get compassionate release paperwork sent in to her due to her heart condition. Here she is
2: i'm heather douse i'm in ciw california institution for women out in chino i called regarding covid what's being done is well it's kind of crazy because in my situation when then mr the covid test actually broke my nose so i'm dealing with all um, but um the nurse did and then after that um They took about, I'd say about 50% of my unit and they um, put them all in a back unit, just isolated them and tested them every two weeks when they came out negative again, then they just put them back but uh sacramento is trying to crack down on um, us wearing masks and stuff they didn't give them to us until later on so at uh, first we didn't have masks now we're doing social distancing so we always have to be six feet apart that's pretty much how they're handling it now there's nothing really they can do in this situation because ciw is a, a minimal security prison so everybody's kind of all over the place so they're just monitoring movement stuff like that we have masks that's it they um give us Bleach, cell block, and uh, disinfectant. I think that we were just unprepared from the start. Now they're handling things better. But when they started, like a lot of people, I'd say about like maybe 55, 60% of people came back positive. So they had a unit full of people with COVID. And, uh, there still is a unit full. So, um, when you test positive, you go back to that unit while you're here, you are just locked in your room until your test come back. And then you go back to that unit if you get positive if negative, then you get off quarantine. But the thing is they're using like co pays and stuff like that where that's like if you complain about medical stuff, like if you complain about medical stuff, they use it to just say you have COVID. So if you, like, say anything is wrong with you, like, forcing anything like that, then they start quarantining you for anything. So that's a downer. But the test, since they want those, it's more efficient. But I think from the start, it could have been prevented if we had done social distancing and such, like, from the start. Instead of Sacramento having to get involved and enforce it. And like me, I'm a cardiac patient, so I actually refused to go out four times, even though I have a pacemaker, because they were going to quarantine me. They were going to, it was a whole lot of stuff just for me to go to my appointment. So it took them uh, four times to get me to agree, and when they did, they let me go to my appointment and come back, which is what they should have done from the start. But um, people were not going to the hospital for chronic care conditions, stuff like that, because we were getting locked down. It's kind of crazy because I had Tom with the nurse, and um, she put the Q-tip. Well, first she checked my mouth like normal. She put the Q-tip up my right nostril, and then um, I kind of backed up because she kept going up my nose like, like too far up, so I kind of backed up a little. She grabbed my uh, my face with her left hand, and then uh, she put her thumb up on my nose, like on the line, and then like, push left and then push right, like pushing against each other. And uh, I still had not in my nose now because it like popped. So uh, I put in co and stuff because of COVID, they weren't seeing anybody, so they were putting off medical. So my uh, my nose kind of healed the wrong way. Honestly, I went not say compassionate relief. Really. i say that they're getting out because first, they let out people that were 60 days or less to the gate. Now they're letting out people who I believe are 180 days or less of the gate. Like, I've been down 13 years, and uh, I was 13 when I got locked up. So I'm 27 now. I got three more years to board. I've applied. Like, I'm dying of heart conditions and stuff like that. But I still haven't even got the paperwork to apply for a compassionate release. So, I mean, yeah, I would qualify, but they don't even have the paperwork here to do it. I mean, like, if they could just make those paperworks available to people that need compassionate releases, it's like, the paperwork to, like, apply for it, that would be great, because I've written all kinds of people. I can't even get the paperwork to turn in to even apply for it. Then we don't have a copy machines. So if we do get one copy, you actually have to file three. So you, uh, there's no way to file it, even if you get the paper. The ones that have got compassionate release that I know of here actually have been processed before all this happened. So the people that got the paperwork are getting them from um, the coalition. I think for women with children, they're giving the paperwork. So they're writing back to people, giving them the paperwork, and then they're just sending their paperwork out to get copied if they have people out there, and then they're following them.
0: Today, we speak with Max Felker Cantor, historian and a professor at Ball State University. Associated with the history and African-American studies departments, his particular focus of study is policing and anti-police violence post-World War II. He's been on our show before, talking about the history of policing in Los Angeles and about the racially biased national weed and seed program. Today, he talks to us about rebellions, past and present, from Watts to Liberty City in 1980 to the George Floyd Rebellion now, and how, although these uprisings are usually sparked by specific instances of racialized police violence, they are indicative of long-term problems in policing. Here he is.
3: So the history of the Watts uprising, the other uprisings of the 1960s, as well as then subsequent uprisings like the 1992 Los Angeles Rebellion, or even Liberty City in Miami in 1980, coming all the way to the present, which we'll come to, those past uprisings really instructive for for thinking about our present. And so, for for example, almost every uprising in the 1960s, including Watts in 1965, was sparked by an episode of police abuse, usually, you know, targeting African Americans. Um, And so, for example, in Watts, it was the Los Angeles um, police department after a black motorist had been pulled over by the name of Marquette Fry, uh, They treat him roughly trying to arrest, trying to, you know, put him into a squad car leads to a crowd coming that moment then leads to calls of abuse and it explodes into six days of urban unrest um, or what I call anti-police protest. And so all of, and so Los Angeles then goes kind of up in kind of these six days of protest called riots by the media, but that, uh, you know, we think of as an uprising or rebellion. And so Watts, like other uprisings of the 60s, they're all sparked by an episode of police abuse. But the thing that I think is really key to understand is that it's not just that the police are a spark. It's that actually the pattern and kind of practice of policing in Los Angeles for the decade, two decades, three decades prior to Watts was actually a a, a racist and racially discriminatory mode of policing in which the Black community had been routinely treated, you know, abused, harassed. There have been numerous police killings of Black men and women in the city. And so it's not just this kind of moment of like, oh, all of a sudden something happens because of the Black motorist is arrested and abused, it's indicative of in these uprisings across the country, you know, through the 1960s, and especially in in 1967 in Detroit, and then elsewhere with Martin, after Martin Luther King is assassinated in 1968, they're all coming within the context of policing has been racist and racially discriminatory in cities across the country. And so these uprisings expose the way that the police had operated as forces of containment control um, and criminalization of black communities across the country, but, you know, in, in Los Angeles in particular. And so it's that piece of it that I think is really important to kind of realize is that we see the kind of sparks, but it's much deeper and it's much more deeply rooted. And coming out of Watts, coming out of the other unrest is all sorts of calls for reform. Um, that don't look all that different, to be honest, from the things that like Joe Biden is proposing right now. Things like, you know, community policing, human relations training, um, including diversifying the officer corps, hiring more black officers, things like that. They're like, that's how we're going to solve policing. But really what all those reforms do are funnel more resources to police departments like the Los Angeles Police Department. They get more resources, in the name of community policing or community relations, They also get more resources to handle riots and unrest. So they get hardware, military type hardware, they get you know, tear gas, um, they get gas masks, they get all this sort of stuff coming out of that unrest in the 60s and early 70s, much of which comes in the name of reform, right? We're gonna solve the problem of policing and police tension with black communities through reform, and it actually funnels all this money into police departments across the country. And it's that growth of police power, oftentimes, you know, liberals, so like um, in Los Angeles, it was Mayor Tom Bradley, who was the city's longtime African-American um, mayor who was in power from 1973 to 1992. And oftentimes liberals are supporting this growth of police power, just like we see today in, in many cases. And it's As the police grow in power through the 70s and 80s, in particular, you know, this this grows even more exponentially with the war on drugs in the 1980s, as the police say, we need more authority to crack down, you know, in communities of color, essentially. Is it those conditions of growing police power and continued abuse of black residents that lead to future uprisings? So for example, in Miami, um, in the Liberty City neighborhood in 1980, is another uprising that sometimes gets you know, forgotten, but is in response to a r- real brutal police department in the city. And that after a moment of unrest in 1968 in Miami, the police chief was calling to double down on repressive policing. 10 years later, you get this kind of explosion of unrest. In Los Angeles by 1991, when Rodney King is pulled over, which of course, again, is this iconic moment. It leads to that. We see as a spark. It really is actually coming on the heels of two and a half decades of growth of policing. Again, oftentimes in the name of reform from the Watts uprising through to 1992, that really then explodes once again in this kind of unequal system of criminal justice of incarceration that came with the war on drugs. And so those moments as they expose the nature of police power and the failure of reform, often lay, led to you know, activists in communities of color and black communities demanding much more um, structural changes to policing. So to not, at times reduce police budgets, to take power away from the police, to get rid of things like intelligence divisions um, and surveillance divisions, to um, reduce the authority of chiefs of police, for example, so that they didn't, didn't have life tenure, as, the, as was the case in Los Angeles. And so it's these kind of activists that were constantly pointing out the problems of policing that also created the conditions to make some changes. And I think that's what we see kind of coming all the way to today with our current conjuncture of unrest and, and protest and uprising against policing is that George Floyd and his murder is a spark, but actually I think what we see is the exposure of how policing, you know, for the past two decades, you know, and especially in the era of Black Lives Matter has continued to be a racially repressive one. And so we have this spark, but it actually, the activism that we see in the protests across the country are exposing the ways the police continue to operate to protect property over human life, so to protect capital, and as well to be this kind of force that upholds a racially hierarchical order and, and white supremacy. And so the protests and the activists are the ones that are exposing that, is what I, you know, is, is I think we can see the parallels there to, to Watts in 65, to Los Angeles 92, you know, back to Ferguson and Baltimore as well you know, in the last decade. The police response um, to uprisings, both in the past and in the present, has a number of—you know—I'll start with similarities. Um, is that we see in the past, so coming out of Watts in '65 or other uprisings um, in the '60s, whether that's Detroit or Newark or Harlem, is the police respond defensively, as they are, as if they were the victims, you know, saying that we are these kind, of, we are the minority police brutality is just a means to kind of denigrate the police it's not actually a real it's not it's not rooted in anything that's actually happening it's just something that kind of communists and civil rights activists have have used to shame the police and so they use that kind of defensive posture in the 60s especially in those 60s uprisings as a means to call for greater authority and power so they say things like, so like William Parker, the notorious chief in LA, you know, basically says, if you don't give us more authority coming out of Watts next time, they'll come in and sack the whole city. And so they use this defensive posture to call for more legal authority, for more anti-riot gear and for essentially the ability to repress at a greater level. But they're, they're responding to the, to the quote, unquote riots as the, as if the, the riots and unrest didn't have any meaning. They're like, they're just criminal and they don't actually mean anything. They don't have any real grievances against the police. And so they use that as a means to mobilize white voters, to mobilize white policymakers oftentimes to support the police more. Um, And I think that's one similarity that we see to today, right? In the past six weeks, eight weeks, we've seen in response to protest, the ways that they are saying things, especially police unions are, are using that, like, we're victims here. Why are you all attacking us? And they use that as a means to kind of try to mobilize in response to the demands for defunding the police and to dismantling, and you know, of course, and to police abolition. And so you see that similarity where they're, they're actively trying to kind of take hold of that political context and um, narrative to frame themselves as in need of more, essentially, whether that's more authority, more power, more, you know, ability to, to, to gain more weaponry in some cases. So I think that's something I see happening now. Obviously, we don't know where that's going to lead. We see those similarities, I think, over time. there are similarities in the sense of, as I kind of suggested earlier, is there's these responses of, we need to reform police departments, right? So whether that's human relations training, community relations, community-oriented policing in the 60s and 70s, or whether that's to today, right? Like the activists on the ground, you know, and Black Lives Matter activists in particular, and the Eight to Abolition campaign are saying things like, reform's not going to do it. We need to actually defund and move towards police abolition, right? And so that's a different demand. And that's similar to demands activists have made in the past, Maybe not quite as explicitly abolition, but you see at least mainstream responses in many cities are like, well, we'll we'll try to implement some reforms, right? We'll change the use of force policy. We'll um, you know try to hold officers more accountable. We'll try to renegotiate you know a little bit of the funding. And so I think it's that you can see some similarities there as well in the ways reform gets spun, you know. Um, in the 60s, it's like, oh, here's how we'll solve the problem. The problem's not actually anything really to do with policing. We can just tinker around the edges, hire a few more Black officers, increase human relations training, um, which is really just the precursor to like today. They're like, we'll do more implicit bias training, right? That's just tinkering, does nothing to actually address the real problem, which is the nature and structure of policing itself. Um, And so I think we see the ways the activists constantly push um, and we're pushing for defunding and abolition. and the and mainstream reformers continue to say, Oh, there's nothing actually fundamentally wrong or with the legitimacy of police. We just need to kind of tinker. So like that's the that's what's happening when you see Joe Biden saying, like, well, actually, let me give 300 million more dollars to the police so they can do more community policing and do, you know, and we'll just ensure that they all have body cameras, right? That actually gives the police more stuff. And so I think that's some similarities there. So I see a lot of similarities. The difference, of course, I think, besides the kind of thing that everyone has said about what, how the protests look different in terms of being much more multiracial, um, being widespread and all of that is that, you also have these interesting moments when the police you know are actually using the protests as a means to sh- to like get a good pr moment like kneeling with protesters marching with protesters right if we really think about it the police aren't actually in those moments committing to any fundamental change it's really just a way to essentially, you know, I mean, at one extreme, it could be about like co-opting protest, right? By capturing this moment of, look, we're showing that we're in solidarity with you, but they're not actually admitting that there's a problem of policing per se, right? That actually policing itself is illegitimate. We did not see those sorts of moments like in, in Watts or in the 60s, but in some ways, we see that happening today, but those, the function of what that, how those shows of so called, you know, solidarity by the police are, to my mind, not actually, don't really stand for much, right? Especially when then, like, two or three days later, you know, the police unions are coming in saying, like, we're going to defend our officers no matter what. And so I think there are some similarities and differences there as well. Some of the things for people to think about and ways, you know, and resources to look to. I mentioned it briefly earlier. Is, you know, the Eight to Abolition campaign. I think that's their website name is Eight to Abolition, which has really outlined, I think, a really great resource of thinking about what does it mean to defund the police. And there's groups across the country. The one that I'm fairly familiar with is like in Los Angeles is the LA LA People's Budget where they have proposed like a budget to the city that reflects the ideas of what if we took 90% of the police budget and put it into other areas that would help build up communities. And so I think the LA people's budget um, is one example of something that activists are doing on the ground to re-envision what the city could be and what it could look like and who it, you know, who could be, you know, fully part of it. You know, if we were to say, what if we, really radically rethought where all that funding was going. So, I mean, at a national, like the eight abolition campaign, and then, you know, there's things happening in cities across the country. I'm in Indianapolis, that's where I live now. And you have group the local Black Lives Matter group has done a lot of work um, on campaigning and trying to hold the mayor accountable. And you've got other groups like IDEO Stewatch and others continuing to kind of push. So there's those lo- local activists too in other areas that are in cities across the country that are doing this work.
0: This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at WFHB.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.